Hey everybody, Jenna here, and we continue our summer break this week with a rebroadcast of another episode from the first season of Democracy Works, which is, uh, as we call the episode, a conversation about conversation. We talk with Laurie Mulvey, who is the director of the World in Conversation Project at Penn State, about uh, some of the ways that we can all have better dialogues, both in a, in a group setting or even one-on-one. Uh, it's a nice counterpart to our conversation from this past season with Timothy Schaefer, who studies civility in politics. So take these two episodes together. They're kind of a roadmap for how to move past the polarization and partisanization that can seemingly overwhelm our conversations and our media diets uh, to move toward a more deliberative model of discourse and discussion. So please enjoy this conversation about conversation with Laurie Mulvey of Penn State. Pennsylvania has a long tradition of manufacturing centers. They called them ironworks, places where people came together to build things. This podcast is about building and sustaining our democracy. We call it Democracy Works. Hello, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. This is Democracy Works. And today, uh, Michael, we have uh, Lori Mulvey, who is uh, Executive Director of World and Conversation at Penn State. From the basement of our building. Right, exactly. Pond Lab, known and loved all around campus. Um, And um, we we brought her here because we've heard a lot from people who have uh, been listening to this podcast and just people who talk to us in uh, everyday conversation, uh, and the one kind of constant is this concern about the uh, the hyperpartisanization of American life and the tribalism that we see in American politics. Right. Well, we we brought her because we're we're interested in that, and also because this program, the World in Conversation, has been uh, doing great work mm-hmm. on campus for for a number of yes, years. Yes, two thousand two, I think. I, thousands. Of yeah, students. ten over ten thousand conversations. Yeah, must have gone through the World in Conversation, the class associated with it, and so it's a real. Uh, I think it's a uh, a real important program in, mm-hmm. the, in Penn mm-hmm. State. Uh, yes, we've talked at various times about polarization, partisanship, uh, the idea that we're in an age of what David uh, Brooks sometimes refers to as tribalism. Uh, so let's uh, unpack that a little bit and, and talk about what it means. I mean, it, it seems to me it's a sense we have today that Democrats and Republicans just don't like each other mm-hmm. very much. Mm-hmm. Well, and and uh, uh, and the impact or the, the 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 level of dislike has really risen dramatically. We've looked into this a bit in the Mood of the Nation poll too. Uh, a few months ago, we asked. Uh, Supporters, right after the election, we asked supporters of Hillary Clinton uh, why they think people voted for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. We asked supporters of Donald Trump why they think people voted for Hillary Clinton. And uh, what was really striking in those responses was just the the negativity, Mm -hmm. uh, the the personalization of the responses. Uh, You know, uh, Clinton supporters thought that people support Donald Trump because they themselves are racist. Uh, Trump people think that uh, Hillary Clinton supporters supported her because they've been duped by the media right. or because they're stupid. Is a term would you, would you uh, uh, accept the characterization of contempt? Yes. It's, yeah. it, 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 it's, On both sides. Yes. It's a right. level of contempt that we, we hear about all the time. Mm-hmm. We see it in our mm-hmm. – we see it. It seems to be it, – it, uh, 
you know, I think that when uh, Hillary Clinton during the campaign talked about the deplorables right. that are supporting Donald Trump, it sort of brought all this to the surface because it really showed well, the I'm, way that she and many of her supporters right. were looking at the people that are supporting Donald mm-hmm, Trump. Mm-hmm. It, it always this is a case that if, if uh, one of these uh, gaffes becomes <laughs> extremely important and politically significant, it's because it, it touched a nerve. It, it, it hit some truth. Uh, it makes it very hard for people to talk with one another, and, and maybe that's really where we and ought to live, go from and there. Live together, and right? live together, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if you're going to define a democracy, right, it is a society in which you um, accept uh, the idea that people are not going to agree about some pretty fundamental points, and yet they still have to live together, <laughs> right, without what, killing each other. But what's sort of striking about Modern, our modern democracy is the extent to which maybe they don't really have to live together and maybe they don't really have to be together because uh, people are increasingly segregated That's right. in their living patterns according to their mm-hmm. politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, it attracts a lot of other things too, but according to their politics, uh, they are increasingly looking at different media. And so they're not even That's in the true. Same, same media sources. Uh, they're likely to be found at different kinds of jobs and occupations. Right. Of course, they do to right, make decisions. Exactly. Yeah. Right, to make decisions. Right. And so, uh, and so that's why uh, we brought uh, Lori in. Um, World in Conversation is, you know, understands itself to be part of kind of this educational experience for, uh, for Penn State undergraduates. And the idea is that by offering students this kind of opportunity to talk through some very controversial issues around race and and, uh, gender and faith, that um, students have the opportunity to learn to listen genuinely to uh, have and, and to do so with some respect and some openness, and then also to um, hear other people reflect on their own views and to maybe have an opportunity to think critically about that. Right. In, in a sense, they're taking people that are very different, defined by race, defined by where they, by nationality, uh, and defined to, 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 to a certain extent by political views. So they don't they don't necessarily focus right. on, on the kinds of political issues that dominate day to day partisan politics. And put them in a room together mm-hmm. and try to teach them how to communicate. With right, them and so and so the our question is, does this model have something to say about how we can solve or address the problem with our democracy right now? Right. Well, so let's learn a little bit more about this model from uh, Laurie and Jenna. That sounds and, good. Uh, we'll pick it up from there. Laurie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So we are going to have a, a conversation about conversation today, right? <laughs> right? How I'm meta of us, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm excited to, to talk with you about all of the good work that the World in Conversation Project has done. Um, I read that you've facilitated something like 10,000 dialogues since you were founded. Many, so, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but taking taking a step back to, to start with, you know, why why is it so difficult for people to talk to each other and and to have conversations and to to have dialogues what are you know some of those those barriers that we see well that is like the question of the century <laughs> i could answer it in so many ways but I, it, i'm going to answer it in a strange way because it's not going to get to the essence of why it's difficult but um 
one thing that what I think happens is that we need facilitators. In other words, like when we play a game, we need referees to make the calls for us, right? And I think in dialogue, we need conversation referees to be able to make the calls for us and to help us through the process because there's so much happening in a dialogue, communication-wise and um, relationship-wise. So I think we just need more support and help in the process. And so in, in your mind, what are the elements of, of a good dialogue? Candidness, first of all. Uh, disagreement with respect. Um, that's always key. And respect is not something that you can just decide to have. It's actually a process. Um, and I think obviously talking about something that's, that's meaningful, that allows us to get inside each other and to kind of see each other as multidimensional beings, but also people who are microcosms of society. I think actually when we don't talk in a way that acknowledges our different positions, we like to call it sociological addresses, I think that conversations are not as meaningful um, and they don't show us as much. And so um, what are, are some of the, the topics that you talk about in, in your dialogues and, and how do you choose which, which topics to focus on? Wow, that's a big question, too. Um, so really, inequity is the foundation of what, of what we talk about. So we select topics that are controversial, first of all, because when you have something controversial, then you actually have a reason to have a conversation. Um, and we look for... Actually, it's not really difficult. Anything you name, you can wind up talk, seeing your different positions in it. Um, but we tend to pick things, obviously, that are sort of uh, current and contemporary and that we are struggling with as a people, as a society, as a world. Right. And so what, what role do your um, facilitators play then in those dialogues? So the facilitators are the people who... We like to say hold the conversation, which means a lot of things, but I, I've been talking about it in two ways. One is they're sort of communication managers and conversation referees. So I think it's that says a lot, that they're really there not, not to lead the conversation, but to find the conversation that is relevant to the people in the room and to manage all the communication traps that occur when people talk to each other, you know, all kinds of rhetorical traps and pre pretty much rhetorical traps. Like, like <laughs> I think what? It is. Like uh, the person who cites the data, and so their position is that therefore most legitimate, or the person who talks a lot and sounds like they, and then takes the most power, or maybe it's some, you know, the people in majority groups have a way of um, just sort of subtly not acknowledging other perspectives or not inviting them. And so all kinds of imbalances that we have to address in conversation. I mean, those are just a few of many in order to on one hand, balance the voices in the conversation, but on the other hand, sometimes we have to imbalance them because of these majority-minority factors. Um, so sometimes we have to sort of give more of a voice to certain people or certain groups and less to others and then switch that around. So there's a lot of managing of relationships. Hmm. So is it is it fair to say that it, the, the outcome is more about the the discussion that happens as opposed to the substance of, of the facts that are discussed? Um, yeah, yeah, fact is a very interesting word um, because we, we pretty much, and it's controversial, but we pretty much ask our facilitators not to correct information um, because facts are the very thing that are, is usually um, contentious. So if we could all agree on the facts, we, conversations would be very different, but that's actually the subject of most conversations. And so... Um, so yeah, that just takes me down such a such a such a different path. So I yeah, so, so I was just wondering, you know, um, you you mentioned that you know one of the the rhetorical traps that you look look out for is people who cite the facts, and so some things are factually 
correct and and some things are not and so how do you square that against the idea that you know giving people an opportunity to to use their voice and to talk to each other so i think the key is juxtaposition so a lot so i think a really big part of one it's just relationship wise to put the two of us in a room together or the 10 of us and to say let's encounter each other and encounter the decency of each other with these different views or different access to facts or belief in certain facts. Um, and then others, other times it's just actually recognizing that if we juxtapose our facts, we may find that they're not alternative facts to each other, but there's actually a lot more ways in which they're woven together and can be woven together and are mostly things that are seen from different perspectives. Less different facts, actually, is what we wind up finding. Or like, these are my facts that I focus on and these are your facts that you focus on. And so the work of the dialogue is really to juxtapose those things and what happens when we do that. Um, and I find that in really every discipline, when we actually juxtapose the facts, we actually learn a lot about what actually might be true. Um, so it really feels, what I observe is that it's a really powerful tool to actually just put the facts together. Right. I'm always doing the air quotes. Air quotes, yeah. <laughs> um, can, can you give us an example of, of what you mean when you say you, you just oppose, juxtapose facts? Yeah, so one and actually just a body of facts that I'll, I'll cite is um, when we have conversations between Arabs and Jews or Israelis and Palestinians. And I mean, just starting with um, Israeli Independence Day or the day of catastrophe, I mean, the, the very day is defined differently. So the facts of uh, everything that grows out of uh, the creation of Israel and, and the history that has come since then is in dispute. And that, you know, it's, and it can be as simple as who did what first, but also just the way I see the specific day is a different fact than the way you all in your world see that that day. And so that's just, you know, one of many examples of different facts. Sure. And you're also doing work on, on climate change. Is that right? That's, that's you know, kind of another area where there tends to be competing sets of, of information or yep. beliefs out there. Yeah. And so we're always trying to find, like, what's the belief underneath the facts that we have? Because what I actually mostly got into this work um, as somebody who was teaching at Penn State and then stopped teaching because I, re I started realizing that it doesn't matter what, quote, facts you give. If, if, I, if, if a student, at least in the social sciences, if a student doesn't want to believe it or can't believe it or hasn't believed that, you, just facts do not, or statistics, evidence does not convince somebody. So I started getting really intrigued by well, what are the beliefs you have? Like, what did you grow up with? What are the principles you live by? Uh, and so those are the, the, that's where we go to in a lot of conversations because that actually is sometimes, oftentimes the place where the ground has to shake a little bit before other ideas, other facts, other information can be even considered. Um, so that's where, you know, a lot of the conversations get. Now, also remember a lot of the conversations at World in Conversation, many words. Many times I'm saying this word conversation, but at the center, many of the conversations are 90-minute one-time dialogue. So you don't get to accomplish you know, a lot. You don't get to look at a whole body of, of work, but you just begin to get people to think that, wow, if I actually juxtapose people, information, groups, ideologies, huh, I actually might have a question for the first time. Right, right, <laughs> so, right. Take away the noise, the distraction. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and I guess speaking speaking of that, I know 
you you read a lot and, and, and hear a lot about social media being the, the death of conversation or people can't talk to each other because we're all just on Facebook and Twitter and what have you. I'm curious what 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 you make of that, if if that really is a is a contributor or is it something that maybe we weren't that good at having conversations before social media <laughs> came online in the first place? It's funny. I So I've been at Penn State since 1989 having conversations in different forms, and I don't really notice a difference uh, just at that level from my eyes. Uh, I don't think that, um, I don't know, I make these grand proclamations, but human beings or maybe any creatures are really that good about con or um, skillful at being in conflict, which is, I think, what would only make conversation difficult. So I actually think we're in having lots of conversations. We're just having them as usual with people who think like us, or we do the sort of hit and run with people who don't think like us. And so it doesn't really seem that different to me. It just seems like we're doing, we're engaging it, you know, from our living rooms or, or something. So in some ways, I feel like we're engaged. It's, it's hitting us more and more and more. And maybe we have a kind of fatigue about it. Which then, of course, makes us really ripe for all kinds of manipulation. But I don't know. When I see people in conversation, which is all the time, I feel hopeful about the possibilities. But, you know, it, it really requires a culture shift to make that actually important. Sure. Um, so we've we've also seen, I think, our, our political culture becoming much more polarized, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering if you've seen that play out at all in, in your, your conversations. Um, again, I mean, we pick the, the topics that are polarized and we put people into our dialogues um, from different perspectives on purpose. Um, so, again, I'm not sure if I see more polarization. Um, what we spend more time dealing with is getting people to actually say what they think because there's so many reasons to self-censor. Um, one, just because you're in a room for 90 minutes and it's really easy to say, I'm not going to invest myself in this. But actually, it's we think it's actually less that and it's much more that we're all good at knowing what to say and not to say, to actually be talking but not saying anything. So we spend a lot more time trying to get people to say the thing that's controversial. Um, and, and so... Once you get there, then, yeah, you can fi- you see the polarization really easily. But again, I, I often think a lot of that is rhetorical um, and not real. I don't think most people live in the polarities that we like to talk about. Um, I, I mean, I guess that's another optimistic piece for me is that human beings are much more complicated than that. Um, so. Right. And so in, in a 90-minute a dialogue, how long does it take to get past the saying what you think people want you to say and actually actually have yeah. the real discussion? <laughs> 40 minutes. It's pretty much well-timed about at that point. Although we're trying, we're pushing it back a little more because we've actually spent the last year really examining the meta dialogue and how it works and the timing and what it takes to get people to talk in a different way. So uh, maybe we're at 30 minutes at this point, but it takes a while. So you really just kind of pack in at the end where people are starting to see, oh, wow, I think this, you think this, what do you think about that? Um, and that's what a 90-minute dialogue looks like. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's lots of, of dialogues and conversations that happen outside of this very structured format, right? And mm-hmm. so yeah. what um, what do you think we can take from, from the work that you've done at, at World in Conversation and, you know, um, uh, maybe apply it to a conversation at the dinner table at, at, at a holiday or, you know, any other situation people might find themselves in where they, they have the opportunity to have these conversations. Yeah, which is most of life, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, th- I think listening, the mindset for listening is huge uh, because I think when you, uh, 
they're sort of it's a way of leaning into a relationship um, and a perspective to just say basically the mindset is tell me something that I don't already know and I don't mean that in a controversial competitive way but I have a feeling that if I really listen to you I will hear something that I'm not thinking myself so having that mindset is is really key but I, I can't say enough how much I think we need facilitators. And I mean, even at the dinner table, I, you know, I think if we had a consciousness that, you know, like we need medical doctors, we need facilitators when somebody gets sick or somebody's having a conversation or a relationship that's broken, we could say, hey, can you can you facilitate this right now? Even, you know, brother, can you f- facilitate this while, you know, me and mom have this conversation? And I think it's hard to say how long of a distance that goes, because you, if you're a participant, you can have all of the communication skills. Participant meaning you're the one that's angry or you're the one that's upset or you're the one that's feeling triggered. No facilitation skills in the world are going to help you in that moment um, for lots of reasons that I could talk about, not just your own inner limits, but also what happens in a in an argument or a conflict or a difficult conversation. So we just need facilitators. <laughs> right. and, and so what what skills does someone need to, to be a good facilitator? Um, you need fundamentally, you have to be able to take all sides. So you have to see that like what your mom is thinking and saying and what your brother is thinking and saying both have a core of truth to them. And so this gets us into the realm of paradox. And I think paradox is probably the closest thing to the truth on, in, on this planet. And so you have to find what is true about what mom is saying, what is true about what you know your brother is saying. That's, that's the key. Other than that, you can fumble through any of the other skills. But as long as you know that you've got to, do, you've got to hold that position, it's key. Because, you know, mostly we're just battling for who's, who's, who's right or who's gonna, who's, whose vision is more true. I mean, it happens to me every other day with my husband, right? And like, I know it's happening, but I do it anyway. And we all do. So if you have that person who can just say, and hang on a second, pause. Okay, we heard you. Now let's hear about this other side. Um, And then you work from there. I think that's really the most powerful part of facilitating. And and is there a certain point where... In, in this dinner table scenario or, you know, something that's not this kind of finite period of time where you mm-hmm. would advise people to just kind of stop or not try to try to come to some type of conclusion? Yeah, I think I think we all know intuitively that there's times where we just need to walk away and just gain sometimes composure, just sometimes perspective, sometimes a deep breath. Um, and sometimes you just need some time to heal. Right. It's like there's the ouch factor that. So even if you took 10 minutes or you took 10 days, who knows, like when you came back with the intention to come back, usually you come back differently, you know, and I don't I think we rely on the separating ourselves too much. So I actually think I like to err on the side of saying, hang on, let's let's try this right now or let's help get somebody else to help us try this Um, again, because usually things are much simpler than they feel when when something gets triggered. So, but yeah, I think all of the things that we do intuitively have a place in managing conflict. Having facilitated so many dialogues, I'm sure there are tons and tons of stories you could tell about successes you've had or really, you know, breakthroughs that have come about. But are there any in particular that that, that kind of stick in your mind as, you know, this is why we're doing this. This is, you know, why we're doing what we do. So we were doing dialogues between Israelis and Palestinians and then also virtual dialogues with folks in Israel and Palestine. So we're doing those global dialogues. And anyway, there was one conversation in the beginning of his work with us where we were having some folks from Israel join us. And uh, he said, I can't even go in the room. 
I just can't. And I said, okay, well, you know, that's, that's all right. You know, we don't have to do, you don't have to do that right now. And then he, then he said, all right, you know, within a day or so, he said, okay, maybe I'll just sit in the back. Um, and he did. By the end of his time working with me, um, his struggle was that he was so able to understand the Israeli perspective that he struggled with what did that mean for him on the other side because he spent so much time listening and understanding that he was encountering complex people with um, big hearts and families and limited perspectives. And so, you know, just this one tiny example. But th my, my point in saying that I follow people is that um, – I only do the work because people who have the hardest positions will have experiences like like that. Not because of how I see it, but because if somebody says to me, um, whoa, like I can now hear them and I couldn't hear them before and they're the ones in the divide. OK, yeah, I'm, I'm going to follow you like our colleagues in Afghanistan. Um, they they say we have to have these dialogues like this. This is life and death for us. And <laughs> right, I'm like, OK, right, right. OK, yeah, I'll yeah, follow you then. Great. Well, you have definitely brought the optimism level of this podcast up like tenfold. Oh, really? From where, where we normally are. I actually, it's funny that you say that because when I listen to the the news, which is always depressing to me, and also crazy making, I I really, I think I've come to um, the passion in my life, which is to say, I really want people to understand the value of facilitators because they're so. This idea of polarization is just the beginning of the conversation. It's how everything starts. And it's really, there's so much space for nuance. And I know a lot of people don't want to see that because, you know, the person on the other side is the enemy. And But in fact, we all have to live together and we have to make decisions together. And it's hard for me to think that we can make any decisions if we see people as one-dimensional caricatures. Sure. Um, so for me, this this is essential. Um, and not just like, hey, we need a dialogue. You know, no, no, no. We need actually to have people in the dialogues who can referee them and can manage them. Yeah. All right, Laurie. So we will uh, close here with our Mood of the Nation poll questions. Mm -hmm. uh, so four questions here for you looking for your best uh, tweet-worthy responses. So, tweet-worthy? Mm -hmm. Man, this is a lot of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> and this is my response? Mm -hmm. okay. Yes, yeah. Uh, so thinking specifically about um, American politics, what makes you angry? What makes me angry? that we manipulate polarization to um, uplift the aristocracy. Mm. Very, very deep, but, but tweet worthy there. Good job. Uh, what makes you proud? In, when I think about um, Same thing, same politics. thing, politics. Uh, what makes me proud? Mm. Actually, the, the fact that we have s such a bad name in the world for our race issues makes me realize that we're actually paying attention to them. And you are setting a high bar for these mood, mood, mood poll questions, let me just tell you. Um, again, same topic. Uh, what makes you worry? Mm. Mm. Lots of things make me worry. Um, the, okay. the good intentions that I think are behind advocacy groups leading to greater polar, polarization makes me worry about violence. Well, we could have a whole separate podcast just on that topic. Uh, and then finally, to close, uh, what gives you hope? Uh, the work I see every day with young people and facilitated dialogues. All right. We'll leave it there. Laurie, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thanks for your questions.
All right, well, we're, uh, we're back. And yet another stellar job by our uh, roving reporter, Chenna uh, Spinelli. And uh, um, Michael, I just I think it's really interesting to see what they're doing as yet kind of another model of, of democratic action and, and how this inevitably kind of manifests itself in our society. Yeah, yeah, good point. It does bring up some really important issues that I know have me thinking a lot right now about how do we facilitate discussion among people on... I mean, for example, we've heard a lot since Donald Trump's been elected about Thanksgiving dinners Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the challenges of sitting down with your relatives who may have opposite political views and just how heated that becomes. And how quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think just like when you think about deliberative democracy, Mm -hmm. just like when you think about participatory democracy, uh, there are small scale ways that democracy can happen that are also important. Right. And I think what she's offering is maybe a small-scale way mm-hmm. of thinking about working through some of this extreme polarization. I, I absolutely it, agree with that. It's labor-intensive. Right. It requires a lot of discipline. effort and discipline. Uh, but, you know, it, it could pay dividends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And on a, on, a, on a localized scale or around certain kinds of issues or perhaps around, you know, they focus on students. They're focusing on future leaders. That's a good place to be focusing. Absolutely. And and it's and what I find interesting is that, you know, they understand their objectives as advancing community, critical thinking and self-understanding. Right. right. All of those things are um, features of an educated person. Right. An educated person thinks critically, is self-reflective and um, listens to other people. Right. And and those qualities are also um equally desirable, if not essential, for a Democrat, right? A Democratic citizen, right? And so I, you could clearly make the argument that in this kind of t- little face-to-face sort of way that um, world in conversation is um, creating a better foundation for our democracy, one conversation at a time. Yes, absolutely. I agree with that. And I think it's really valuable and interesting that way. And it also, I mean, I think they're highlighting some really interesting and important problems in the context of their discussions. For example, she talked a lot about facts. Mm -hmm. And uh, facts are a problem (laughs) these days. So let me me try to unpack that a little bit. I mean, you know, we we hear sometimes about motivated reasoning, Mm -hmm. this idea that we you know, come at things with a certain set of preconceptions, right. certain point of view, certain opinions, Bias. and certain biases, mm-hmm. and this shapes the facts we bring in mm-hmm. and the facts that we exclude, mm-hmm. the information that we're opening to listen to and the information that we tend to. And, you know, going back to this notion of uh, extreme polarization or, you know, to bring in a technical term of it, it's a, a affective partisanship. And so it's a matter of whether you're accepting these accepting these facts. But other things, I think, you know, it is really a matter of perspective, how I see the same event. Right. As you right. I, I kind of felt that way when she was talking about the, um, the founding of Israel. Right? Absolutely. You can have different perspectives on yes. this, but that this event took place on this date, that is a fact. <laughs> right? Yes. And, and, and uh, it is difficult. How you see that. Date. Right. That's yeah. a totally different question. And that perspectives matter. But it is very difficult to sustain a democracy or even get a democratic conversation started 
if there isn't some kind of common acknowledgement of those kind of basic facts? I'm not sure how we do actually deal with issues like climate change if we can't come to some kind of agreement on basic facts, unless you go back to that other model we talked about, which is just one side just beats the other. Right. Well, the I, I, I completely agree with that. But I, I do think that um, that Lori makes a, 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 a point that is worth reflecting on. And her argument is that Facts don't change minds. You can tell people oh, facts, absolutely. and they and it doesn't matter. But well, that what, comes back to the motivator reason, right? Exactly. Yeah, but absolutely. what can matter, and what she's talking about, is um, putting people in a in a position in a in a situation in which they have a chance to reflect on their own views, and possibly, she said, people can shift, right? And so maybe. Um, given the fact that we all have these biases, this is perhaps the best way to get around yes. this this kind of inherent bias and, and the, the insufficiency of facts. Which goes back to discussion I feel like we've had over multiple podcasts, which is that, you know, the kinds of education required to be a good democratic citizen is more than just understanding facts right. <laughs> or how government right. works, uh, but requires a range of tools. And I, I think one thing we, we really learned today uh, is that the world in conversation is really doing a very doing very valuable work mm-hmm. in terms of helping to helping students to learn certain types of skills, skills to be good democratic citizens. It's just it's we just we keep harping on it. But democracy is not natural. <laughs> it's extremely difficult, and it requires significant investments on the part of citizens in if it's going to work well. That's why we call it democracy works. Democracy works. So I don't know what Jenna finds this sufficiently positive, but for us, that's not bad. Yes. Let's yeah. end it there before <laughs> we... <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody.